Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. It is me, Stuart. There is no Rob. Rob is having a week off, and technically, I am also having a week off too. So if I'm having a week off, why am I podcasting? Well, over the past month, I managed to record not one, but two guest interviews slash guest conversations with different people. Now, that is something when the pandemics first kicked off, I thought, oh, you know what? I'm going to do so many guest interviews. I have not done so many guest interviews. Uh, my enthusiasm, if anybody has seen my enthusiasm for a lot of things, please return it to me. It'd be much, much appreciated. I will give you a five-star review for returning my enthusiasm. Uh, and by... Me saying the lack of enthusiasm, that doesn't mean I don't look forward to doing stuff. It's just a case of, hmm, I'd like to do that. Maybe I can do that tomorrow. And as we all know, tomorrow never comes. So um, I'd, I'd done a few things for Grimfest, which were great. These were video interviews. This is not one of those video interviews, although it was a video interview and it was still great. But uh, I'm still not used to doing video interviews. And the reason being is the technology. Now, when you're doing an audio thing like I am doing at this moment in time, I am sitting here wearing a headset and it's audio. It's great. I can move my head wherever I want. I could twiddle a bit of pen if I so choose. I could look at show notes if I ever actually bothered to prepare anything. With a video conversation, you're obviously looking at the screen because you're having a conversation and it would be very rude not to look at the person you're talking to. Now, in the past, I've used my PC, which is uh, it's a 32-inch monitor with a little webcam stuck on top. And obviously, when I'm talking to the person who I'm looking at, they're on my screen. Duh, obviously. However, the webcam is at the top of the screen. So when you see me talking to the person on camera, it looks like I'm actually talking in the wrong direction because the webcam is in a different direction. Kind of sucks. Now, I can I, if I look at the webcam then I'm not looking at the person who's talking to me. That's really rude. So I've battled with how to set this dumb thing up for ages. Somebody very simply said, why don't you just use laptop? Those cameras seem to be set up perfectly. Good idea, actually. So the second of the interviews that I did um, with, with Stacey Southsizer, which isn't this one you're about to hear, I actually used a laptop. So I installed Zoom. Didn't bother changing the settings to make it as perfect as it could be. And uh, also my headset was misbehaving. So technology kicked me in the rear end on that one. But uh, sorry about that. But you will end up hearing that episode and that conversation. Thankfully, Stacey's audio is perfect. It's just mine. It's a little bit lower than it should be and a little bit muffled. So maybe that's a blessing. I don't know. But uh, Stacey's voice was perfect. So you can hear him. This conversation, however is is kind of perfect the only technology issue i had with this one is to try and get over the whole webcam thing i took my webcam off the top of the monitor and put it sort of in the middle of the screen on this little tripod thing so a makeshift 18 macgyver type crappy thing i thought that kind of works but then part way through the conversation i sort of thumped my desk a little bit for some reason not in a fit of rage because courtney was absolutely lovely but i just sort of put my hand down on my desk and the camera started to topple 
So I quickly picked it back up and Courtney had a laugh and I had a laugh and felt very embarrassed and realised maybe I need to crack on with this technology thing and get that sorted. So for me, whilst I do like doing video interviews, my God, I prefer doing audio. So much easier. You put a headset on and you chat. You can do whatever you want. You can you can look at your show notes. You can look at the clock to make sure you don't overrun on the time scale. Who on earth wants to go 50 minutes over time scale? Um... But I still like doing the video one. I mean, I sat face to face with Courtney Gaines and we chatted for near enough an hour. We were supposed to be covering his new film, Queen Bees, which he, and he'll say it himself, he's a little bit of a cameo in it. So we can't spend an hour talking about like a two, three minute cameo. So we delve into all the other films that Courtney got. He tells me how he started in the business. Uh, he tells me the story that involves a prop knife in somebody's throat, which is quite interesting. Don't do that, uh, young actors, if you're trying to get into the business. Although, maybe do, because it kind of worked for Courtney. We talk about Memphis Bell, Back to the Future, The Burbs, whole bunch of stuff. Um, we talk about stuff that I didn't even know Courtney Gaines did. I don't know, Chris from the Bind Torture cast will love the fact that he and Courtney have things in common, shall we say. So this episode is sponsored by Anorex. Uh, they're not, you know, it's Chris's band. Chris's, is it a band, Chris? Because you do it all yourself. Are you a band? Are you a band or do you class yourself as a solo artist? Either way, it's sponsored by you, pal. Now, you're not giving me any money, but do you know what you give me? Pleasure. No, not in that way. Don't be filthy. Luke is is getting jealous right now but uh but you give me pleasure by the cool music that you bring out so that's how you're sponsoring this particular episode chris by your eps and rumor has it there's a new one due out very very soon so um hopefully i will see that on my timeline and i will chuck a few quid in your little band camp thing just to just be charitable i guess you know, are a lot of people throwing money away for your wonderful music i hope so but you know who knows? But no, I'm looking forward to your new EP, Chris. Uh, thank you very much to Courtney Gaines. Thank you very much to everybody at October Coast for being able to uh, to sort of set this conversation up. I I remember seeing Courtney Gaines in his first big screen appearance in Stephen King's Children of the Corn in 1984. There I am, this little 13-year-old little shitbag, sitting watching a film that I shouldn't be watching, but it's great. Um, so without further to-do from me... Let me introduce a conversation I had like a month ago between myself and Courtney Gaines. Take care. Bye. This is Anthony Alex from the Angry Mailman podcast, and you're listening to another fine show from the From Page to Screen media empire. Hey guys, this is Ace Marrero from the movie Madison County. Hi, this is David L.G. Hughes, writer-director of the film Hall Bowl Suites. I love the pace and the fastness, and I love the fact that you just roll with it. Hi, I'm Eric England, the director of Contracted. Hi, I'm J.J. Amanwood, writer-director of Aviation. Hi, I'm Brando Benetton, director of Nightfire. My name is Nathan Whitehead, and I wrote the music for Beyond Skyline. Hi, this is James Kellen Brussack, the writer, director, and producer. Hi, this is Ben Lloyd Holmes from the film The Expedition. This is Dominic Burns, the director of Allies. Hey, Stewart, page the screen.com up in my bunk, please. Snitch, yeah, that's my motorcycle running and tracking up with my fucking snitch, genius, with Dom, Dean Peter, and Christopher. I'm Neil Johnson, I directed Rogue Warrior and The Time War, and I crucified Adolf Hitler. The from, from page, page to screen. To screen. Yes.
How are you? I'm okay. How are you about yourself? Good, thank you. I can't see myself. If I look okay, I'll come and take off my glasses. So. Uh, I cannot, cannot see your video just yet. Oh, I guess probably. Okay. I can see your name in a nice big white font, which looks oh, pretty. I, maybe, pretty I did, maybe, I, maybe I didn't add it. So let's see if that's. Oh, here we go. Yeah, start video. There we go. There we Ta-da. go. Yeah, that'll work. Do you not do you not find the biggest pain with wearing glasses is I could see it is like I can reflect my own monitor in, in one exactly. back. Of, I cannot there's work no, out how to make that. There's really away. no way around it. Yeah, <laughs> you've took your glasses off. You're that's cheating. Yes, well, you know. I'm an actor, right? I have to look good, you know. That is true. I've had a little bit of a Courtney Gaines sort of festival in my house this week, which has been quite oh, yeah? good. So I've I looked at your filmography. There was no way I was going to be able to watch it all in a week. That is just <laughs> that is not possible. So I thought, all right, what do I pick? So I went back to the beginning and watched Children of the Corn, which is uh, you know, it's you as far as IMDB says, it's your first on screen. Credit. absolutely that is the first uh it's also the first film i saw you in so i was way way back i was i was there with you uh, yeah. so i watched that one and i watched your latest film queen bees okay love that film i i, it, need, it, I, I think we all need films like that in the past 12 12 to 18 months sure. nice happy human yes mo- emotional films yes uh you you were a bad character in that though but you know, yeah but you know, served a purpose, right? Got them to got the group to bond, right? If you're yep. gonna have a do a cameo, have it be something that at least has some impact, you know. It does has some balls, yeah, and yeah. <laughs> literally no spoilers. <laughs> but no, I I love that film, and I thought, right, what do I do? So I'm gonna go not necessarily near the middle, but I decided I was gonna go and rewatch and revisit Memphis Bell. Oh, that's a good one. Good choice. That's a great film. I saw that when it first came out, so yeah. I rent, rented it from the video store. And watching that when I was probably about 18 years old. It was exciting. And it was like, you know, there was fighter planes and, and it was great watching yeah. it now. That is a damn scary film. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Was, uh, you know, David Putnam who produced it, you know, uh, was actually a child, you know, hiding in the subway to or running. He said, I remember when I was like 10 or like five or seven years old running around in my underwear in the, in the tube, you know, and I'm just like, wow. So this was something that meant something to him because it certainly, it, it impacted his, you know, some of his early childhood memories. Crazy, right? Because I think originally, because I remember hearing about the film in development uh, here in the UK and whatnot. We, we love our Lancaster bombers in the UK. Yeah. And it was, I think it was originally going to be about that. But obviously the the worldwide scope, you know, we love Hollywood movies. So I think it sort of transitioned to become the Memphis Bell movie that, we, yeah. that we've seen and love. Yeah. Um, and that is, I mean, yes, the, the fighter scenes, uh, the cinematography is very exciting, but that is so much more emotional watching that as an adult now. And mm. obviously we've we've lived through several wars, so we're kind of more, the, the, more familiar with them now than I believe we were in the late 80s. The statistics were one in, you know, basically if, uh, bombers would make eight runs before they got knocked out of the sky. I mean, that's not good odds. No. And, uh, Remarkably, the character I played, Kashmir Nastal, and his brother both joined underage. They had lost their parents. Their sister signed them up. They were like 16 and 17. One flew 50, one flew 55. 105 missions. If you look at those odds of one and eight, and they flew 105 missions, I'm sure that has to be a Guinness record for two brothers. I'm sure it has to be. You know? I, w- I would think it would be. It I don't really know that it's would. in the book, but I would imagine it has to be the record. I mean, that's... That's over a million to one odds. It's just incredible that these two young men 
survived that insanity. I mean, you know, to me, like the scariest part to me, the scariest when you're scared is when you have time enough to think about being scared. And so like, say like I parachuted before I did that movie, just because I wanted to put myself on an edgy situation going down was scary in its own right and overwhelming. But you know, what was scarier is after you open the, the parachute and you have all that time, you're going down, hoping the parachute's going to last, you know oh, what I'm saying? I At thought this I thought the scariest bit would have been just before you jump out. But. It is, but it's but when you're sitting there and you have like you're up there for like five minutes, you're like really you know everything's slowed down. You see how high you still are in the air, and you still have to get down safely. You know, but the moment of truth is certainly when you pull that that for the for the parachute to open. That is the moment of truth. But I guess what I'm trying to say when the characters is like you know when the flax happening, there's nothing they can do anymore. They can't shoot anything. They they just have to go through the flak. And you're just hoping that shrap metal doesn't rip through this aluminum tin can because that that oh, that magnesium was nothing. It's very thin. They had to be that as light as they could, and that was the lightest thing they they could make them out of the time magnesium. But the irony of that is, if magnesium catches on fire, it burns to the ground. Yeah, you are you are literally in the hands of anybody else but you. I think at that yeah, moment, it's, it's like that moment of truth. That's the way you just have nothing to do but think that I hope we're not getting hit by shrap metal. And uh, you know, the director Michael Keaton Jones had said that his goal was to make Das Boot with wings. I don't know if you remember that German. Yeah, movie, yeah. Das Boot. Yeah. And my favorite part about that movie was the same thing when they're sitting there having to be super quiet while the while the charges are coming down, exploding around them. They can't make a noise, and they're like just close to death. You know what I mean? And they're just. And the, the the performances in that movie at that point were just it, there was nothing to say, there was nothing to do. You just you had to be present to you know this could be it. And I thought those guys did a great job. How much of Memphis Bell was was you up in the planes? I mean, I'm guessing a lot of it was you know on a landing plane. And, we and only film got set, to but... actually go in an airplane once. We got there on the July 1st and on 4th of July, which was obviously odd being in the UK because there was mm-hmm. no fireworks <laughs> going on. No, nothing. On the 4th of July, we uh, got to go in a real B-17 while they were doing second unit photography. And that was, there was two of them that went up and half the guys went in one and half the guys went in the other. And that was an amazing experience. And what a great, you know, seeing the Fock Wolves dive and seeing how hard they would be to shoot and all of that was, was you know, but just the experience of saying you got to fly in a B-17. I mean, my God. The rest of the time, it was uh, how we, when we filmed it. What they did is they made a complete mock plane uh, and it was it was divided into five pieces so they could shoot, you know, whichever. And we were up on this. We were up. We had to go up like a flight, you know, on a, on a platform that they could actually that when the, when the plane's diving and we're like at a 45, they the platform did that. I was literally hanging out of, onto the window or, you know, the opening to not fall through. That was pretty crazy. And they had that thing up on a 45 like this. Um, but that's that's how they were able to get great footage is they were able to like they only needed the front. They could just shoot the, from the cockpit. Then they could shoot to the middle. Then they could shoot, you know, and if they needed to shoot further, they could have all five. But rarely did they ever need to do that. And they had fake wings that they would just sort of move around to look good for camera. And, uh, you know, it was – it was, and they, they had 5K or 12Ks blasting light in, and like it was the sun. And those, and those, those leathers was probably the most difficult shoot I've ever done. I mean, there was times I lost – I almost passed out a few times just because of – losing so much water, sweating so badly. Uh, anytime I ever have a tough shoot, I'm always like, eh, it's nothing compared to Memphis Bell. <laughs> so, and what's that? What are the toughest ones do you think, Memphis Bell? 
because of that. Yeah, because you had yeah. the leathers on, plus you had the wool outfits underneath that that are was were plugged in to keep you warm. So it's like almost like a blanket. Imagine having a blank a wool blanket and then a leather coat on top of a wool blanket. Mm. And then imagine having 12K lights blasting directly at you. And, and then have to perform dialogue and be in character. That's right. There's a tough shoot. Yeah, you is. Uh, I mean, I've had other tough shoots, but believe me, I think as far as just discomfort, that probably took the cake. There's so much love for Memphis Bell because I, I spend most of my time on Twitter just, you know, tweeting and, and talking movies and stuff with nice people, not the crazy people on Twitter. I tend to avoid those. <laughs> But, and there's a lot of those certainly in the past couple of weeks. But uh, I so I tweeted out that I'd, I'd rewatch Memphis Bell. There's so much love for that film. So many tweets came back. Oh my god, that film's amazing! I've not seen it for ages. I suspect I've probably caused a bit of a rewatch sort of wave yeah. for Memphis Bell uh, this week. Yeah, it's certainly one of the movies I'm most proud of to be a part of, without a doubt. And uh, you know, it was good. Uh, whenever you get a chance to do a story about real people that have done something extraordinary, you know. Mm-hmm. You feel you feel a real obligation to get it right, and I, I did have a chance to talk with uh, the guy I loosely played. His name was Kashmir Nastal. He's no longer among us, but we flew out eight of the eight of the members with their wives and had a dinner. And Harry Connick got on piano, and they all danced with their wives. And it was something. It was a brilliant idea from the producer because we got to see those guys and they got together, and it was like a it was like a group of guys who'd won a Super Bowl or something. You know what I mean? They had beaten the jaws of death and you could just see the glint they had in the eye for each other because of what they'd been through. Like it sort of, it would, it brought that back for them that, you know, it's almost like they were champions, if you will, you know, and it it was something you could not have described or told us. It it was something we had to see. And uh, yeah, they beat the jaws of death. 20, I think they actually ended up doing more than 25 missions, but uh, that's a remarkable number, you know? It is, but it's. I think the biggest thing for me is realizing how it had gone from being a, an exciting, you know, action film, watching it as a kid or a teenager, to this is to purely basing myself, put myself in the characters, uh, and it was, yeah, it was sure pretty, as an adult, pretty, pretty terrifying, a, a whole different much, perspective, much more, you know, much different perspective is is where you know from a teenager yeah. to an adult, you're going to see it from a much different perspective. But that's the neat thing about film too, right? How you see yeah. it. I mean, our, our, I think our points of view change greatly every decade. What's important to us, you know, at 10 is not what's important to us at 20. What's not important to us at 30, you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? Like every decade, our, our priorities tend to, tend to change, you know? I've gone back, certainly over the past 18 months, whenever I get fed up with the real world now, I go back into nostalgia. And I'll watch a lot of the films that I watched as as a child. And then some of them I'm thinking, really, I like this film. <laughs> Why? What's sure. going on? Why did I watch this film so many times? Yeah, uh, you missed miss that political double entendre or things like that. As a kid, you would not notice it as an adult. Of course, you do now, you know. I felt like a real idiot watching Children of the Corn because it was I'm, I'm very familiar with that film and I, I think I saw it in 85 whenever it hit VHS mm. here mm. in the UK so I've seen it on and off over the years and uh, he who walks behind the rose I always thought it was a flower the rose even though it's, <laughs> but, but what's even worse is it's written on walls and stuff in the film and for some reason maybe the TV I watched it on way back when was like a 14 inch <laughs> color portable or something but it was like what <laughs> how so that was my stupid moment um, English English translation. That's all. It's, no, it's just plain <laughs> stupidity on my part. I think. So it was, but it was the, the thing with Children of the Corn is yes, it's I've you know the, the story's good. I'm a big Stephen King fan. It came out at the time of a lot of my Stephen King favorites: Dead Zone, Cujo, 
you know, sure. Cat's Eye, all, all of those. So it was one yeah. of one of the, the big films at the time. Um, and is the performance by yourself and John Franklin as a double team. It's yeah. very, very scary. I could have watched, you know, lots of films with a pair of you in. So Yeah, well, you know, to our credit, you know, uh, I, I know mine has, I'm sure his has too, uh, you know, we're voted in like top 50, you know, scary characters mm. of all time. No makeup, right? Take take some yeah. pride in that. Top 10 uh, uh, kids. And I think John Franklin is number one. So, uh, you know, as, as far as kid actors go, I think we obviously had a pretty, you know, left a pretty big impression. You know, yeah. it was a great introduction for the two of us to start our careers. That's for sure. What was it like after? And the first thing I've got to ask is there's a story on the internet, which I read in, and it's apparently an interview that you gave that involves a prop knife and a guy called Jeff. Is that a true uh, story? Jeff, yeah. Jeff, Jeff uh, Gold, Goldberg is his name. He, he went on to be a very big casting director, cast the TV show Comedy Wings and, and was, you know, at Paramount for years. Yeah, I pulled a plastic knife on him. I put it, under his, I put it right under his throat and he couldn't tell whether it was real or not. You know, it's something that I would never have the nerve to do now. I know better, but I was young and I was hungry and, uh, you know, I, I wanted to leave an impression and I guess it worked. He, he, he got on to do many lectures where he would tell that story as what not to do, you know, yes. but I always thought to myself, but they're listening to that going, wait a minute though. He got that job. <laughs> yeah. I, I know you're saying don't do it, but it kind of worked. But it could blow up. It certainly could blow up uh, in your face. Sometimes something like that can work, but uh, it it could also get you blackballed from that office for the rest of your career. So it was it was a risky move, but it was a risky move that paid off. I was young and hungry and felt like I had nothing to lose. You know, talking about young and hungry is it also true that at six years old you said I want to be an actor, not I'd quite like to be an actor because that's okay, something else read, I read about you. Yeah, you read the interview. That, that, absolutely, that's according to my father. That's that's the case, and that was the words he used. It was not. That not not even want I'm going to be yeah so it was I I stated you know like this is what's up not not a desire but a in fact going to come to pass you know and it did and, and it, yeah it did it left enough of an impression on him that he thought whatever I could do to do that I'll help and when I finally did start getting into acting classes they had to there were times they had to scrape the pennies together to keep me in class but they could see that I loved it you know they could see I was getting value out of it and uh, you know they. Uh, Funniest thing is, you know, when we, we went to see, there was no premiere. We went to see it opening night on Hollywood Boulevard, bunch of friends and family. And I was petrified. First time I ever seen myself on a big screen and had a little party when I got home. And when everything had cooled down, you know, I was able to ask my dad, so what'd you think? And he said, I had no idea you had that much anger in you. And I thought at the time he meant I was a good actor, but I realized as time went on, he really meant he saw what was coming out of me having grown up in tough neighborhoods and some of the things I had to deal with in our family, uh, I think he realized, wow, he really let out all that juice that was inside. And that's what, yeah. that's what acting, you know, one of the things acting affords you the ability to do is you can really exercise, you know, some of your demons, you know? Is it, is it kind of like the writers should always write what they know, then you use your own demons or your own memories think, to bring I out think, characters? I think as an actor, it depends, right? I mean, I'm a method actor. And, you know, so that's that's working from the inside out, as it were. Um, if I can just use what they call the magic of believing and completely believe the situation without having to do that, that's great. That's choice one. But let's say you're in your fifth take crying over some loss and it's just not happening for you anymore. You could think of your dead dog and all of a sudden you can get back into those feelings and an audience isn't going to know exactly what you're you're doing. 
but they're not. They're going to look at the circumstances that this was before what was happening in the scene. This is after what's happening in the scene. So they're just going to go with with that. You won't know what I'm working with per se. So, you know, it's nice to have a toolbox of things, but you have to know what pushes your buttons. And and the thing is, it changes over time too. It's always a you know, it's always a little bit of a you know a treasure chest, a, a Pandora's box of what's going to get you where you got to go next. And sometimes things work, sometimes they don't, and sometimes they surprise you how much they do. Um, I, I did a, a horror film that the trailer just came out recently called the, uh, the, 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 the bleeding dark. I call it a horror drama film though, because all my parts are just drama. It's about a father and son who's, we get robbed and, and the wife gets killed. And my son blames me. And then she starts appearing to him and that's when things start going wanky in the horror, you know, the killing sides. But my character is just depressed. I have the son who's, who's blaming me and very, very intense. And that gets to a point, gets to a point where my character is suicidal. And there's a moment where I just have to break down. I'm just standing there in my bedroom and I have to break down. I'm like, well, how am I, you know, where am I going to find that? Right. He's been building up to this moment. So I just found an old picture, a picture of me when I was a teenager with my parents. I lost my parents at like 19, 20 years old you know, don't look at a lot of photos, to be honest. And I, I just ha- I had that and I had a picture of my son thinking which might work. And when I picked that picture up, you know, you can't see what I'm looking. You just know I'm looking at a picture, assuming I'm probably looking at a picture of my wife. Mm-hmm. And I mean, floodgates come in a, came in a second, you know, it was like more than I thought was going to happen, you know? So you just never know what little, it could be something as simple as a photo or a song or a memory of your past, you know? You just never know what's going to get you there, but it or open the wound. Sometimes I call it dropping in where you, you just get that place where it opens the wound and then you drop into the character. But now the, the wound is already accessible. You're already in those feelings. And I honestly don't understand English actors where they say they just act. I just don't understand if they can, I don't, cause I mean, obviously there's a ton of brilliant English actors, yeah. great English actors. And they're like, it's called acting my boy. Like <laughs> I don't understand how they do it. Like if no. they can do I, if, if that's really what they're doing and they can do it like on some technical level where they don't have to actually feel anything or something, how lucky for them. Cause that's not, that's not how I get to my, get to what I got to get to. I think, I, I think they've probably got their own toolbox. I think they just, it's very English to go, Oh, it's nothing to it. It's fine. It's easy. I just yeah. do it. I just do it. Whereas behind the scenes, I think they're like, Oh, what am I going to do? Right. I need a toolbox. Like, you know, give me a picture of my dog or a picture of a <laughs> sheep or something. I would suspect that there's, there's very few people who can, I would think who can just go, right. I'll just cry. Right. I'm crying now and tears. I've yeah. seen, I've seen it done. I've looked through a camera lens and seen somebody do it and it blows my mind how they can do I'll it. But, you, I, but yeah. I think they've got a toolbox. I've worked with a few, you know, a few what I would call naturals, you know, uh, Reese Weatherspoon being one of them. I'm not saying she doesn't use something, but she makes it look easy, right? She can be talking in one second action. It's like a light switch, you know what I mean? And, you know, speaking of English, you know, Malcolm McDowell, uh, you know, he's my manager also represents him. And that guy, I've worked with him a few times. I've never seen somebody so, lack of a better word, cocksure of themselves and their abilities, yeah. And makes it look so easy. You know, it's almost, to the, he almost makes it look so easy that I don't even think it's a challenge. You know, I mean, I don't even know why he keeps working. I'm saying to myself, he has enough money. This doesn't seem hard for him to do. What's he getting out of this anymore? But uh, he loves it. He, he, mm. he, like all English actors, they just want to always be working. You know, if you pay their rate, doesn't matter if it's a big movie, small movie, you pay their rate and it's a role they'd like, they'll show up and they'll do their job. You know, they're very professional, but he makes it look so 
so easy. It literally pisses me off. <laughs> you know, I watch something great at something, I just get mad almost. You know, I get jealous. Obviously, I don't know Mac- Malcolm McDowell, so I'm not speaking for him. I do know him, but you know, not know him, know him. Yes. But uh, so I would suspect he's up all night going, "Oh, what can I do? Let I me get my quiz so. pitch." I would. I, I'm hoping so for everybody else's sake. I, I Otherwise, you know, his, he could just do wife, one role. His wife told me a story because uh, I, I got to go. You know, except because of my manager, I've gotten to go to many events where he's spoken, especially like when the 50th, what was it, the 40th anniversary of Clockwork, and and you know. First off, he'll say anything that's in his mind. Like he's not one to censor himself. You know, he's he's yeah. he's, he's, he's fearless. But she was telling me this this story where he was he was it was some uh, slave movie or something. He was his character was like brutally supposed to be whipping a slave. He'd be talking in one second. She said, "Be like action!" I was gonna be like, "Yeah!" Like she, he said, <laughs> he could go from normal to that in a millisecond. Yeah. Like it was nothing. And then when done, oh, so bad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's just like. You know, just he he's gifted, man. He's gifted. You know, I don't I don't mean I'm sure he figure, has to figure some things out, but I don't think that guy sits there and worries too much. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you one more about Malcolm's story because the first time I got to work with him was I did a the first CD-ROM thing ever made with human beings in it. First in a video game with human beings called mm-hmm. Wing Commander 3. OK. And yep. he was on it for one day playing this playing this commander. He had this big speech. Number one, he had Mark Hamill rattled within five minutes. He was like cracking jokes about his height because Hamill's always has to be on an Apple box. Super yeah. nice guy. So he basically he's taking over the set and he would have this long speech and he'd be talking about Caligula or something and then jumping to the speech, whoa, commander. And then some, he'd be doing a perfectly good speech. And then at the end, he would just ruin it with like telling a joke or something and laughing, laughing in Mark Hamill's face or something because he knew I could do it again. I could do it again. I could do it again. I never seen a force of nature like this dude on a set. On a set, no, I, he could just—he's like, I could do this all day. It was like, it was like—I mean, I never seen somebody like that confident. It must I'm be hard. It must be hard working against somebody like that because I, I know. I mean, I'm not an actor, so you know, what am I to say? But I would just be so. Oh yeah, it's my line, isn't it? I'm too busy watching Malcolm McDowell. Just be amazing. Oh yeah, it's me, isn't it? Yeah, you got to shake that. that. You got to yeah. you got to shake that and have your point of view. But it was I was just standing right next to them in you know on the commander line while he was looking at us. So I just got to watch this thing take place all day. And I was cracking up. I mean, there were times I was in tears with this guy, you know, talk, telling us stories and stuff, but I, I've never seen anybody take over a set, especially working one day. I've never seen anything like him. <laughs> he's, he's a force of nature. I tell you now. He is one of those where, and there's, there's quite a few actors like that, where even if the film isn't very good, their performance always makes it watchable. And Malcolm Absolutely McDowell is, right. is definitely one of those. I'm sure he would admit he's been in films that aren't perfect. But he's still watchable. He's still watch it because he's in it. He'll just do the job. You pay the rate, he'll do yeah. the job. You know, it's that. It's that. It's, but uh, yeah, just you know, he's it, yeah. It's it's interesting. It's really interesting to watch it work. I got to work with him on uh, the TV show he was on too, Franklin and Bash, and mm-hmm. I had, you know I had a big scene actually with Reed Diamond from Memphis Bell. He was, he was one of the lawyers. And so we got to reunite and, and clash and that was really fun. Um, so, you know. So, so what sort of made you fall in love with the movies? Obviously six years old, you're going to be an actor. And I don't know how many films you would have seen up to the point. Yeah, I don't know where that old, came but- from. I can't, I can't tell you where that came from. That was just a story I was told. I, when I decided it was when I was 10, when I did my, my first play, I uh, played the Prince of Stone and the Seven Dwarfs. And when I came out onto the stage, my life changed. You know, something about being on the boards was very familiar and calming. And when, you know, 
she was saved. I got to be the hero and the crowd applauded. I was hooked. So I was very clear that I wanted to do it. My mom was, my mom, interestingly enough, was in the USO entertaining troops in the World War II and, and started very young. And she didn't want, she was like, uh, you know, the, the Jack and Coogan stories where the Coogan stories where the parents would take their money and all that. She didn't, she didn't want me to be a childhood actor. And I kept bugging her and I kept bugging her. And she finally put me in a class when I was 13. I hated the class. It was like kind of her rock style, like, you know, dancing, tights, tap dancing. I came from like mm -hmm. the ghetto, man, in LA. Like, I was like, what is this? This is not, I was about to quit. And this guy stopped me on the street. His name is Virgil Fry, working actors. He said, I'm an actor. I teach a class. I love your son's look. And I'm thinking, who is this guy? He's like, my son's in an audition. His son came out. His name's Sean Fry. In the 70s, he was working a lot. He was in the original. He was the child in the original Fun with Dick and Jane. He was in many movie of the weeks. And I went, wow, his son's working. This guy must know what he's doing. And he became my mentor. I stayed with him 10 years. He was, he was my manager for a number of years and, and broke me into the business and taught me my craft. And that's how it happened. You nice. know? And then you know, it involves a prop knife somewhere along the way as well. Yeah. That was, that was, uh, you know, I was told that that casting director, Linda Francis was the first person to believe in me. And she brought me in for some other projects of when I had gotten cast in and the movie fell apart and she was, you know, she was the one championing me to get that job. And that's, you know, when people ask for advice, that's, I say, if you can get three casting directors to believe in you, that can, you know, that's the difference when you get in work and not get in work. You know, because if it comes down to say like, you know, you and a couple other guys, or whatever, and they're, they're the ones wants you, they're going to be like, get him, take him, take him, take him, you know? So you got, if you have a few people who believe in you, it can, those doors, you know, those doors will open a lot easier. What was it like after Children of the Corn, a high profile film? Also your yeah. first film. What It was, was it was, you know, I, I bring John Franklin into the conversation too, because we both had the same experience. It was shocking. You know, we, we started getting recognized, but we also started getting recognized in a really crazy way. Like kids would see us and then go running to their parents crying and stuff. You know I mean, <laughs> yeah. like, that, that's yeah. happened to both of us more than once, you know, are people coming up to us and saying, I have nightmares about your character. You know, I've heard that many times, you know, I've heard people come to conventions like, you know, I saw your movie when I was 10, you know, and, you know, I you scared the hell out of me and I've been into horror ever since. You know, I'm like, you're welcome. <laughs> you know, but you realize it, it, what I realized was the power of cinema at that point. I realized it's a really a powerful, powerful thing and be careful how you use it, you know, and, and you know, you can do things like a, like a Memphis Bell. I've also had people come up to me and say, so I watched that movie. My father was in, was a pilot in World War II and he would never talk about it. I mean, we went to see that movie together. And after that, he started telling me stories. Yeah. I mean, can you, can you put a price tag on that? No. You know, or like a can't buy me love. I've had people come up to me and say, I was a you know senior football player going looking forward to hazing the, the freshman. And then I saw that movie and I couldn't do it. You know, when you start, that's when you start to realize the power of cinema. Like you can, you can affect change in a positive way, you know, and that's pretty amazing. I think a lot of the time, so I grew up pretty much on my own. I just kept myself to myself and had a bit of a crappy childhood and whatnot. So that's when I fell in love with movies and going escapism, to the cinema. Right? It was a pure escapism, but it was also how I learned to socially interact with other people. Mm, so mm. I would watch films and go, okay, so that's what you say if somebody says this. So that's how you do it. You know? <laughs> I'm glad I didn't watch John Wick or something when I was a child. Like, That's how you behave. But 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 I learned how to sort of socially grow through watching films. That's uh, actually a really funny premise for a project. Think about it. That's a really funny premise, and especially like you said, like a, a John Wick or some somebody who yeah. 
has no idea how to interact and, and they learn to interact through movies, but often, sometimes they learn inappropriate ways to interact through movies and what comes <laughs> to that. That's kind of a, remember that movie being there when, you know, the character yes. Chauncey Gardner, it's yeah. sort of like a version of that, isn't it? If you think about it, that's an interesting mm-hmm. idea. You maybe, could, maybe, you could you, we'll go for it. We'll love it. Yeah. I was going to say, maybe we have a movie idea here to develop. <laughs> Definitely. But that was me. That was, I would take yeah. myself off to the cinema when I was seven, eight years old and just, you know, watch Superman the movie. I, I did a podcast last night with uh, filmmaker Neil Johnson and uh, another co-host friend friend of mine and we were like how did we get into sci-fi we did one about horror films a few weeks back and i i was able to pinpoint the year that i fell in love with movies which was 1977/78 and that changed me as a person so superman close count with star wars cat from outer space that that turns out that was one of the things that made me fall in love with movies which is a it's, strange it's a choice I didn't, I didn't use your style to uh, to interact because my first hero at 10 years old was bruce lee so i would have been not that i didn't learn to use nunchucks mm-hmm. i did i made my own nunchucks and learned to use them and <laughs> took, kung, took kung fu after that for a number of years uh, a few years and then i kind of had to drop that i was like either guitar and acting classes or that and so i had to let it go my but my son ironically is a black belt in taekwondo and so it's like carried on to the next generation um, he loves MMA. I watch a lot of MMA myself. Uh, but uh, but yeah, good thing I didn't like you know think no. the way to interact was open a can of whoop ass. Yeah, that that would probably have got you into a lot of trouble. That'd get you into more trouble than a prop knife, wouldn't it? Really? <laughs> yes. I would yes. think. Not that I didn't. I'm sure I got hit and hit people, even friends of mine, with noon chucks more than once. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> don't 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 injure yourself, though, Courtney. It won't be good. Yes. Yes. So I noticed the guitar. Yes, guitars. I, yes. I I only learned probably a couple of days ago that you're a musician as well. Yes. And I have to give you a big old thank you. I, I will tell you why. Because my, I mean, I don't do this for a job, but I do this for, you know, a very serious hobby. And I talk to filmmakers and write things and sure. film things and all that sort of stuff. Sure. So I love all this. Uh, but I have a night job that is just a regular job where it's a customer service thing and lots of grumpy people and all this. Yes. Stuff. Customer service is the worst. <laughs> so it certainly is. So working from home, which is fine, I have the two computers set up. So I'll do my job on one PC and I'll do uh, my own stuff on the other one. And it was a very, very busy night. And I thought, let's just let's prepare to speak to Courtney. What films are we going to watch on these days off? Children of the Corn, Back to the Future, Memphis Bell, Queen Bees. We're going to watch those. And then I saw the, the mention that you're a musician. I'm like, oh, didn't know that. So I went on to YouTube. So yes. I put one of your music tracks on YouTube and I just stopped doing my job. And I just listened to it for two and a half, three minutes, and it chilled me out. And it was going to half half past five in the morning on my fourth shift, fourth night shift. And I just thought, you know what, the job can wait. And I just sat back in this chair and just listened to your music for the two and a half minutes. And you it was what song it was. It was bliss. I have it written down here somewhere. There was a time. Ah, thank you. Yes, that's one of the. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, that's. The, the acoustic record, which is what I'm putting out right now, I have a band too, we can talk about that as well, but uh, so it's called Acoustic Gains Volume 1, and I've put out two singles so far, there there was a time was the first one, yeah. second song came out last week called Cherished, and the third song is called Let It Ride, which is a blues tune, uh, is coming out on Monday. Um, but yeah, a people's response to There Was a Time has been really nice, and I, yeah. I've had that song around for years, I've had that song around since my son was you know, so in the early, you know, early nineties. And I just, I've been talking about doing this acoustic record for a long time. And 
when COVID hit and everybody was home and I was just like, okay, you know, I've been talking about this for a long time. And I started doing some research and I found out you could put a home studio together. You know, you usually just do this thing called an audio box. You plug it into your computer. It gives you a, a you know, thing to do your tracks on and you need a couple condenser mics, maybe even one, if that's all you want. And a stand, you don't even need that technically. And you can start tracking your material. So it's like, I have no excuses. I need to do this. And so I've started doing it. And that was the first song I decided to put out. And so it's really lovely to hear that it actually, yeah. if it could, you know, we talk about, you know, a movie could have an impact with song, you know, music as well, obviously, it could put you in all kinds of music. So the fact that you're doing your stressful job yeah. and it could bring a little peace to you is, uh, as an artist, all I could ask for. So thank you for sharing that with me. It brought every bit of peace that I really needed in my job. It's I, I like I like the fact that my job pays the bills. That's quite nice. Yes. But my the job drives no, me up. It drives me service, insane. It's awful. Customer service is <laughs> tough, man, because you're getting the brunt of, you know, you're you're just the messenger. <laughs> you, you don't always get treated like just the messenger. Yep. So no, thank you very much for putting the song thank out. You. And here I am in the UK, listening to it at half past five in the morning, and it just relaxed me big time. So that's great, man. I, I look great. forward to to the rest of the songs coming Sweet. out. So wh- where did the musical career come from? Was that before the acting, or was this after, or was it during, or have they always well, run I've, parallel? Yeah, I've never, yeah, I've, only recently am I even really having a conversation called career. You know, I've, I, but I've been doing it the same as long as I've been doing the acting. I started taking. Uh, you know, guitar lessons when I was 13, same time I started taking acting lessons, but it was very clear to me that my intention to become a professional actor was, was the goal. But music's always been uh, just an avenue for self-expression. I, I just love writing. That's, I've, you know, I've performed, I've had bands. It's okay, it, but it, it's okay. But the best is the moment you write a song, you know, that's the best. It's, it's, it's a really creative private moment you know unless you can collaborate with the people and i do that too and that's fun too but like if i have something that's uh, i'm you know that i need to say that's burning that i need to say or the feeling of you know going through a breakup or something that i can find a way to articulate i could find a better way to articulate it through a, a, a song you know like the mood of a, of a guitar or the or the words or both it allows me a way to 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 grieve you know and get through stuff and so that's really how my, how how the guitar continued to progress and then you know i would do projects and like i said this was one that had been on the bucket list for a while and you know again covid makes you think hey i don't know how you know who knows anything could happen yeah. and i you know and if there was one motivation on that level it was just leaving leaving stuff leaving the songs for my son to hear if nothing else you know i have a son who's in his mid-20s and uh you know that's something i would like him to have yeah, he certainly heard it all growing up. He's heard all these songs a thousand times, probably, to be honest. But uh, that's you know, not the same as having them there for posterity, you know, later. So, what is it like sharing songs? Because uh, there is this certain wrong thing where people go, Oh, an actor's trying to be a musician. Of course. Oh, no. Of course. <laughs> that actually has worked to my advantage because the expectations aren't very high. Oh, <laughs> right. Well, they're not right. I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying about actors and doing music, you know, uh, it, you know, it, it, so, but that's good. If you don't expect much and then I do something good, you're pleasantly surprised. It's, it's, that can work in, that can work to your favor. One of the coolest little stories about years ago after Memphis Bell, I was traveling through Europe for a while and we were in uh, Spain and we went to eat at this place. And my girlfriend at the time, she started talking to these English guys and this, and this kid from, from Italy and, or from Spain. And she mentioned I could do music. And they were like, 
they were like looking to take a piss out of me. They're like, oh yeah, go get your guitar. And I played the song and I made them feel so bad that they, that they ended up putting me up in this kid's chateau that night. And then the next day took us flying around in a, in a plane. And then nice. they had a, they had a farm in Canterbury and we got back and we stayed with them again. And it was all because they thought they were going to have a good laugh and the music exceeded their expectations. Yeah. So it's worked to my advantage. I, you know, but I understand, but these songs are definitely a little vulnerable, vulnerable, some of them for me to put out because they mm. are some of them very personal and it's just acoustic and it's just stripped down when you got like your band and you're rocking hard and you're meaning just maybe, you know, some anger or whatever might be there. That's a little easier to shoulder in front of people, you know, I mean, you're loud. So they don't want to talk. You're going to blow them out anyway. Yeah. Right. So you have the, but when you got to get there, just you and a guitar, man, that's not easy. I've done it. And I've, and I've had beef sometimes. With, I like you, I remember I did this show at the mint, which is a well-known club in LA. And uh, it was after a comedy show and all those people went to the bar and they were not listening. And about two songs in, man, I just called them out. I said, Hey, take that shit outside. If you're going to keep fucking talking, you know, I'm, I got to do a set here. You know, don't like the set, take it outside. <laughs> and then everybody like quieted down and started paying attention, you know. Um, but but it, it can be really hard to just be with you up there, just you and a guitar. That could be a lonely feeling. <laughs> Probably a bit like putting a film out and then sharing it with Twitter. Really, isn't it? You're like, oh, no, here we come. Here it's we go. It's, anytime mm. you put yourself out creatively in there and now people are going to judge you, whether it's, you know, doing a play or an opening night of a movie or, or putting your music out. It, there's, there's a level of, this, of that. That's absolutely terrifying, you know, but if, if, if you, the, the beauty of that though, is if you actually follow through and you do it, you put yourself out there. There's a time was a good example. The feedback I've been getting some wonderful feedback, like you just shared makes it all worth it. You know, and like my, my goal is like, I can have, if, if I put out something that one person thinks is good enough to put in there in their, uh, Spotify playlist, you know, that's like the greatest compliment in the world. Right. So, you know, so it's, it's, but you don't, you won't know unless you face your fears and, and, and put it out there. You know, yeah, I think it's very easy to go, Oh, I'm not going to try it because people might not like it. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you could have way, way back. thought, oh, I'm not going to go for this audition. I'm not going to pull out this prop knife and uh, go for <laughs> Jeff. I'm not going to do that. And then your life wouldn't, wouldn't have gone down the avenue that it has gone down. Well, you so. know, I, I told my son, I told my son years ago growing up, you know, if you can get 51% of the world to agree with you, you can be president of the United States. Yeah. Like you don't got to get them all. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Not everyone's going to like what you do, No. you know, and you have to learn to accept that. And, but, you know, but, but when someone comes along who does, that's, it's a great, it's, that's a great feeling. So you mean whatever, you know, this acoustic record won't be for everybody. You know, a lot of people don't even listen to anything acoustic anymore. I grew up in the seventies remembering a lot of the material was acoustic. There are people that had full records that the main, you know, their main instrument was an acoustic guitar that they built around, you know, but those days are kind of long gone, but I, there's something about playing an acoustic guitar. I love writing, right. I think writing on an acoustic is the way to go. And it's the ultimate test. They say, if you can write a song on piano or acoustic guitar with nothing else and it holds up, you've written a solid song. And I think that's fair. Yeah. And then from there, you can, you know, if you want to make it a, into a band project, you can, and you build on it, you multi-track and all of that. But if it doesn't have the bones, just like a movie without a good story, right? You got to have a good mm-hmm. story. And what are yep. you doing? You know? I think for me personally, I listen to all sorts of music, a lot of movie scores, but uh, I think you take one person, one acoustic guitar. And it is, I think you said it yourself. It's very personal, and very vulnerable. Uh, one of the CDs I'm constantly listening to is, is Snuffy Walden's soundtrack to the stand. The Stephen mm. King miniseries, which is pretty much acoustic guitars, and I just 
that's relaxing. I think one voice, one acoustic guitar can just be so spiritually what we need, I think, at the time. It's like just calms yes. us down and takes right. te- takes technology it, out of the way. It, yeah, exactly, because it's natural. It's an actually yeah. a natural sound. It's it's you know, it's not a, a electronica. Um my, one of my favorite artists uh, is Janice Ian. I don't know if you're familiar with her. No. She wrote a, well, she in the '70s she 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 got so big so fast. It was like, where do you go from there? She wrote this song. I mean, she wrote this record called "In Between the Lines," and she wrote a song called "At 17, which you you may have heard. It's like kind of like the ugly duckling theme for girls. Okay. It was just a huge song. But she was like hailed the female Bob Dylan at one point. I mean, like what's and she was young, so it was like really, we where do you go from there? You know, but uh, that album is just I, I it, it caught it captured like whatever teenage angst and loneliness I felt better than any album, in my opinion, ever has. And she is so painful that I got to see her play once finally after years of her not touring. And she only played 17 because she knew we all wanted it. You know, it's like that's like the song everybody comes for. But she wouldn't play any of the rest of the record. Oh, because it's just like she doesn't want to go back there. Hmm. That says that says she channels something. She don't even want to channel it no more. You know what I mean? She's like, nah. Like kind of. It was an amazing thing to uh, to get to actually see her live, and she's one of my heroes. And uh, I've recently looked. You know, she has. You know, recently she has some stuff online, and uh, she's like, if somebody asks, who would you like to meet at, at this point? And if she's getting up there now, you know, she's not. You know, she's got like seventy or some sixties. I'd love to meet her sometime, and uh, I would if. I'd be probably deathly afraid to play a song for her. I don't know if I could handle it. You know, that's how much I admire her work. I think she would love it. What do you reckon? <laughs> One day. I, I will, when you do it, let me know that you've played it for her and let me know what you thought, but I would definitely check her out. I yeah, always, I always yeah, like recommendations. She, she's brilliant, man. If you hear her music, you're just like, I mean, her vocals, her songwriting, she is good, man. She just did, I saw a thing she just did. Uh, she did a, she did a, a, a thing at Berkeley College, a residency, and the first thing you have to do is do a talk. And she was by far the most truthful artist I've ever seen give a speech. I mean, she she talked about things that artists don't talk about, like what it's like to the pressure of performing, what it's like to look in the mirror before you go on and go, I'm fat. And then you know you got to go play in front of 8,000 people. These are the things people don't yeah. talk about. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? This is, you know, the pressures that everybody coming at you that wants something from you, like you, you, the pressures to everybody. When you break everybody, you know, your songwriting partners can't wait for you to get back to Nashville so you can write some more songs. Why? Cause they're going to make some more money. Right. You know, it is like, it's, it, and these are the things that people don't talk about. And, you know, I've experienced that on a small scale and it can be intense when you're young to have all that happen when you're working so much that you start to lose yourself. You know, and, and it, it's, it did happen to me a little bit. I had to take a step back for a while right after Memphis Bell, kind of get my head together because I was just, I tell this story, it got to the point where I couldn't, because I was doing character work and I was doing method work, physicality work, and I could not, rem- it was a point where I could not remember how I walked. I, oh, wow. I mean, okay. That scared the hell out of me. Like, I felt like I was losing my identity and nobody in my, my camp gave a rat's when I was like, I'm still scared. I think I need to take a break. They're like, oh, poor Courtney, he's working too yeah, much. Yeah, bless him. All these, yeah. all the famous people he's working with. Because oh, <laughs> yeah. actors and creative people aren't real people. They don't have problems. They don't run into speed bumps. And these, are, oh. and these were people that, you know, that on my team that I felt close to. They just didn't get it. They just didn't get it. And I had to I had to step back for a little bit and, uh, you know, go on. You know, that's part of why I went through, traveled through Europe right after Memphis Bell and stuff. And everybody else got back as soon as they could because they knew, career opportunities were going to show up. It was a big film to be in. Mm. 
I went to, I went through Europe. I traveled to India. I had to get my head. I felt like I had to get my head straight again, you know, take, and I don't, I don't regret it. You know, I don't regret it in that regard. Cause it was, I see, I, I, I can, I can understand how like musicians, why they end up doing drugs or things like that. You, you're performing for all these people who are adoring you. And then you go to a hotel and it's just you and it's empty. I don't think a lot of people can handle that. I think it's a lot for people to handle. And yeah, I think most people will look at it and go, oh, is he depressed? Why? What's the matter with it? It must be bad having all that money and being able to fill stadiums. Oh, no sympathy whatsoever. They don't realize the, well, you, when you the watch baggage. Those, when you watch those breaking breaking of the bands and stuff like that, which are actually fun to watch, what you see mm-hmm. is the label running these artists into the ground. Yeah. And 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 what do they have the what do they have the road manager doing? Drugging them up, drinking them up, throwing girls at them. Yeah. Right. Keeping them distracted, keeping them high and keeping them on the road, making money. And, you know, that's why a lot of these bands don't last. They, you know, three, four years of constant touring. And when you're not touring, make a record and then tour it again and make a record. People, people burn mm-hmm. out, you know, and, and the labels like their point of view is, hey, you know, they, they're hot today, but they might not be hot tomorrow. Let's let's milk this for every cent we can, you know. It's a money train, isn't it? And then the people behind the scenes are like, well, we'll just get somebody else and we'll make lots of money with them. And exactly. these, these poor on, artists are just left. On to the next. Yep. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that's what you hear stories. And like a lot of times these bands, these big bands are like staying in some palatial place, but they don't own it. And then when the, the hatchet comes down, they're like, you got three days to get out. They got no money. Mm. You know, they, they, they thought they were rock stars and they're living the rock star life, but they don't have the foundation to go with it. You know, young, you're when you're young and you know, you're 20, you're not thinking about any of that stuff, but these label guys are and a lot of managers, a lot of managers took care of, you know, took major advantage of artists, you know, and, and, uh, you know, that's unfortunately artists are not the smartest business people. That is for sure. No, I would think it's very easy to sort of get used to cut the compliments and get used to the traffic, you know, have this and have that. And there's a limousine and all this sort of stuff. Wow, this is amazing. It's, I'm not going to ask why they keep giving me this stuff. I'm just enjoying the fact they're giving it to me and and go along with that train. Exactly. You know, of course, how, how you would in your twenties, you wouldn't think twice, but but you see with athletes too, like how many athletes you make God, just godly amounts of money go broke, especially NFL players. Like the statistic of going broke afterward is, 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 is so high that now they're, conducting classes for them to tell them how not to blow all their cash. Mm. Cause you give that much money to a 20 year old kid who's never had any money before. <laughs> they don't know what they're doing, you know, or how many people have won the lotto and their life ended up being more miserable. And I mean, people who've been murdered, people who've won the lotto have been killed for their money. It's pretty, it's a, you know. well, it's a very strange world, isn't it? Well, you have to be able to handle it. I think that's yeah. what it comes down to. When you have this stuff come at you, it's like how much of it can you handle? And, uh, you know, that's why I said, I, you know, I've only had a, I haven't had, a, you know, the hugest level of success, but I've had enough where, you know, I've seen it and it's a lot to handle. It's a lot to handle. I think looking at your filmography, you've had a very steady success. So I think that is in some ways better than, you know, reaching the top of Mount Everest. And then where do you go from there? Your career is, it's in its hundreds now. For, for yes. credit, I yeah. actually I actually looked up, and this is I don't know whether you'd looked it up or not, but there is only three years since 1984 where you didn't have a film come on it come out. Three years, 
in that whole gap where you've not had a yeah, film. Yeah, two of them. Two of them are right when I when I'm talking about taking that break. I mean, I took I traveled, then I started a band, I started a production company, and then I got married and had a kid. And that's when everything shifted. Once I had the kid in '92, I was like, okay, I got to go back to work and I got to make money. And yeah. that's when I started, you know, doing a lot of guest stars and got, you know, it was like a lot of pressure on my back to, you know, be the provider. Now it was a different, it was a different mindset. You know, I'm, I'm dad now. I got, I got to bring in the bucks. I got to keep the rent and food on the table. You know, change, change, change my mindset uh, completely. But yeah, I, it is in hindsight. Now that we can step back and look at it, 35 years later, it's absolutely a blessing. I mean, I could barely handle what I had when I was, you know, in my teen cinema run. If it had been bigger than that, I don't know. The only thing that kept me grounded at all was the work itself. Like, it's, I, I was in a class five years before I broke. So many people in the class I was in, within a year they were working. because It was a very good class. And they stopped studying. But, you know, I studied those five years. I paid my dues. But then when I got work, I didn't stop studying. I studied with my mentor for another five years. Then after that, I've always either taught and or studied and that, you know, keep me, it's the fame, fortune, all that stuff, you know, the perks you get. I mean, there's, you know, there's all these, you know, there's different levels of that, but really if you just keep your eye on the Hollywood, you know, LA, well, there's, it's all there, man. You know, you know, any pit, pit trap, whatever, it's all there. But if you just keep your eye on the ball, which is the work, which is what, what got you there in the first place, while well, you were doing it in the first place, you know, you'll be okay. Mm. And I think you are okay. Did I? All of the, the roles I've seen you in, and I will probably carry on my my Courtney Gaines film <laughs> festival thing. I you'll, just I was well, limited find, on time, and I managed to fit. You'll in find form. some stinker movies along the way, then, my friend. But that's okay. The, uh, I'm sure you're really, really good in them. But it's it's you know I think sometimes you need a stinker movie to make the next one an amazing movie. You know, so it's, you're not always going to get a studio film or you know, like that. I've done a lot of independent films, you know, where they had limited budgets and they did the best they could, you know, but you, you got to keep working, right? Got to stay busy. Hmm. So. so I'm guessing people ask you about Children of the Corn the most, I would think. Yeah. Maybe that, maybe that's not true. Maybe followed by Memphis Bell. But what, what of your... The Burbs, which I rewatched yeah. on a 120 odd inch projector. We bought a projector at the start of the pandemic. So we have like an entire nice. wall and we sat nice. and watched The Burbs on that but what are some of your other films where you think you know what people don't mention that as much and they really should what are a couple just, examples of that uh the third film i did lust in the dust i think is a pretty damn funny comedy yeah and you know if you're a divine fan by all means watch it but even if you're not it's pretty damn funny mm-hmm. there's a lot of good actors in that and a lot of good performances um i always tell people I, I worked for two weeks on it. i stayed another two weeks just so i could watch people <laughs> of like you know caesar romero you know work i mean yeah. You know, so that was that was a great film for me to do as my third film to work with a bunch of veterans and see what that was about, you know. And now I'm that guy. It's pretty funny. Uh, but uh, I would say that one, I would say one that, you know, talking about indie films, I produced a film that I was also in called Benny Bliss and the Disciples of Greatness. I was going to mention rock, that. Yep. Rock and roll road comedy with an anti-technology bent which, you know, I have some of that and that's where kind of that happened. But that was a lot of fun to make uh, the director who's also in it, uh, Martin Gigi, mm-hmm. he, a, a very, very good musician as well as a uh, director. Uh, he, he, uh, and he plays with uh, Gibbons from ZZ Top, you know, now. So that tells you if you're playing with Gibbons, you, you know, one of the great blues guitar players alive still to this day, you know, you can play. Um, but that movie, I got to write four or five songs in it. I, everything we perform is live. So there's no punch-ins on vocals or anything like that. 
the movie's pretty zany. It's not the perfect film, but it, but there's some really cool moments in it. And we got to improv about 70% of it. So that was a really fun as an actor. But the performance at the end that takes place in the vortex in the desert, that was probably the most without a net as an actor I've ever been. We had rehearsed all the songs, but we'd never rehearsed them in order. And I had all these introductions in between songs. That was like 30 minutes, you know, like a real performance. It was like a full set with all this stuff. And we did that twice. And uh, the coolest compliment was uh, the extras that we brought in were after the first set, we're saying, this is the most fun we've ever had on a set. And I said, this is the first time we've ever done a performance. They were like, you, you, that, you're, you're lying. That can't be possible. And I'm like, no, these guys are all pros behind me, <laughs> you know, but uh, that was like the moment of truth in that movie where if we didn't deliver that ending, which we've been building to, there was no movie. But it was like, it wasn't like, oh, little take cut. It was like 30 minutes. I've never been on a film where I shot that long, you know, in one take. You know what I mean? Just keep going. It was it was crazy, but it was really, really fun. Because that was a film I'd noticed going through your filmography thinking, right, which of course these films I'm going to watch. And then I saw you you had the writing credit. I'm like, oh, let's look at that one. And I saw Martin Gigi's name on it. And I spoke with him in a similar conversation to oh, him late last year about Paradise Cove. Oh, and he, he, he had all the instruments and you know stuff behind oh, him. So this is like a thing, but nicest guy. Uh, he's legit, man. He's a legit mm. musician. He uh how we bonded is we uh I was in this entertainment basketball league called the NBAE. It's the sort of sponsored by the NBA for celebrity stuff. And uh, there's so many crazy egos on these basketball leagues, it's like hilarious, you know, like they're like big agents or big musicians or, but some of them are like, you know, their egos are like out of control. So we were cracking jokes about stuff and starting to know each other. And he was like, I, I said, where are you from? He said, Burlington, Vermont. I said, that's where fish is from. I know Mike Gordon. He's like, dude, I, I know Mike Gordon. Like, you know, he came from that same jam band experience in Burlington, Vermont. They were all trained by this college professor there who was like a heavy duty music theory guy. And that's what started that whole jam band phenomenon in Burlington. And Fish was just the band that broke out. Mm. And so we bonded over that. And I was doing some doing some music. And he came in and played keyboards and he slayed. And we started talking more. And he was we were, we were talking about maybe doing like a spoof video, this character Benny Bliss with those songs. He kept taking notes. I said, dude, it sounds like you're making a movie. And he's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, we got it together and we made a movie. And it was crazy fun. And you became a director as well. You directed a short film. So where, where yeah. did Courtney Gaines, the director, come from? Yeah, so it was really just sort of out of necessity. And why I say that is, so my girlfriend, who's also a manager, wanted to write some things maybe some of her clients could be in. And uh, one was this guy named Tommy Sheeter, who I was also really good friends with that I, I kind of brought to her that I felt was should be out there, but he wasn't. And he had this run of like five, six, seven things he did, including this short. And then he passed away last, the beginning of last year. So I'm really glad we got to be part of fulfilling his dream. Um, and the movie's been in, since been in like 15 festivals and one best ensemble and a couple and best director, which has been more than I expected. It's a comedy. And she just came up with an idea that was really funny. And I just made her sit down and write it. And it's, it's basically about the symptoms, about this guy who, his job is to diagnose symptoms, but he's always like inappropriately doing it wherever he goes. Like at a party, he sees something. He's like, oh, you could have this. You could have that. And this girl, woman he likes has this bruise. He tells her to get checked out long and short of it. She does. And he ends up saving her life. And it kind of gets them together. So it's this cute little 
uh, comedy, but I said, who else, who better to do it than me? You know, and, and I, I said, I'll, I'll show you how to edit, produce because I've done more of that. Mm. And I felt I could do a sitcom or not sitcom, but a comedy because it's less about camera and more about performances. So everybody in the movie are, are friends of ours, basically. And um, it, it came out cute. And uh, we're, we've had our good festival run. Now we're looking for a platform so now we can people can actually just go see it. Um, so that's how that started. There's some talk of maybe doing a, a editing, a directing a, a, an anthology, a piece of an anthology horror project, which would be great. Again, not a whole film, you know, some I could take on. So I, I read the script and see what I like, but we're in talks about that. So maybe this directing thing is going to happen. It's not, it's not a have to happen for me at all, but I, I, I do like producing, um, but it's very difficult. You know, you're responsible for everything tons of pressure but when you pull a good team together and it comes together it's a very gratifying thing to see the end product you know you're a man of many talents mr gaines you really <laughs> are many hats man many many hats so i i've loved all the hats you're wearing so far so i look forward to all the different hats that you're going to wear as well um and i will just i'm going to watch a whole bunch of your films that i'll well, not, not necessarily want, wasn't definitely familiar want with. Hear, definitely want to hear what you think of uh, uh benny bliss uh yeah. like i said it's a, it's pretty out there i'm not saying you are or you aren't but i tell people you know it's not a bad movie to have a glass of wine with or if you you get baked it's it's it's, it's a stoner <laughs> movie every step of the way so. i think the strongest thing i'll have is probably a, a can of iron brew or, a, or or pepsi i don't tend to drink myself but i'm sure i will <laughs> I will still enjoy the film, but I will let you know. But, <laughs> it's uh, that kind of movie, though, for sure. Good, good. But uh, <laughs> thank, thank, and finally, sort of thanks for everything you do over the years. As I'd mentioned, I grew up watching lots of films. Uh, Children of the Corn was was a, a benchmark in my film watching. Back to the Future, one of the most beloved films of all time. And uh, you know, if I wasn't speaking to you this week, I might not have gone back and rewatched Memphis Bell over the sure. past couple of days. So thank you for that, and thank you for giving me those two and a half minutes to just purely relax while i Love listen it. to your music so i look forward to more of that coming out courtney did did i talk about the things that are coming out did we do you that don't. no you can now though i'm, I'm eager okay. to uh, we've been having such a just a chill conversation i forgot yeah. you know what i've done and haven't done so right now a movie called queen bees is out and so it's, it's a comedy and uh i only have a cameo in it but i got to work with ellen bernstein Anna margaret jane Curtin. And Loretta Devine, and that's like what a, what a what a group of iconic women to get to work with. That was a joy. And so it, and and it and it is a funny film, but it's also a very emotional film. Yes, you know, it, yes, it it's works. Comedy, but on it's really a lot. talking about real issues, which we we started with that, right? So yeah, yes. So that's out. And then the next movie is a little indie I did called River. That's uh, you have to call sci-fi because of some things, but it's really not like in space, and it's not CGI. Okay. <laughs> but it's a cool it's a cool film. And then, and that's coming out July 13th. And then uh, a movie called Charming the Hearts of Men is coming out August 13th. And that's a movie set in the 50s. And it's about civil rights and about the woman who had a hand in getting the word women put in the civil rights. So it's kind of mm. really cool. I'm proud to be part of that. And uh, another movie I'm in called Await the Dawn just came out on Prime Video this week. And that's a horror film. Got mm -hmm. uh, D. Wallace, Vernon Wells, kind of a crazy fun nice. ride. Yeah. And um, let's see, am I forgetting something? Movie called The Bleeding Dark, that horror film. That's on, you can check the trailer out now. I don't know when it's coming out. And I did a, uh, a BET show called Tales. That's an anthology, 10 episodes a season. That I did episode three. I get to play a really bad cop in that. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how that performance came out. I'm not sure when it's coming out this season, though. So 
it's like a lot of stuff got put you know, on hold through COVID and now it's all coming out. And uh, Gravitas Venture picked up all three of those films that I was in. So mm-hmm. God bless them because now they're all coming out on theatricals and VOD. So you couldn't really be happier. You know, it's hard to get a theatrical release nowadays. So it's like Gra- cool. Gravitas are a name I'm very familiar with. I do get a lot of their sort of press releases and see a lot of their films coming out and stuff. So they're definitely one of my favorite labels yeah well, i think they're being a champion of the little of the little yeah. movies that could right now so god so god bless them man and a huge shout out to queen bees which was amazing i didn't know what to expect i knew what it was called i knew that you were in it somewhere beyond that i didn't know anything about it i sat down and put a big old smile on my face because it's Good. it's a charming film with a great cast yeah. as well so yes um but i shall leave you to your day courtney thank you very much for taking some time out to of a conversation with me. I I will be nervous afterwards going, oh my God, I've just spent near enough an hour chatting to Courtney Gage. That is amazing. Goes on my wonderful geek list of cool things that I've done in my life. But just, I I really, really appreciate it. And a pleasure talking to you. You're going to have to go on my Facebook or whatever, or get an email or whatever, and let me know what you think of Benny Bliss. <laughs> Definitely. I'm going to seek, I'm going to seek it out as soon as possible. Love it, hate it. Just, you can tell the truth, but yeah, I got to hear what you think now. <laughs> <laughs> I, will ex- I will experience it. And I'm sure... But I will let you know, Courtney. <laughs> All right. Sounds All right. good. Pleasure. Take care. Have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.